Welcome to the Crimson Thread. I'm John Behrens, pastor of Restoration Messianic Fellowship in the Boulder-Longmont area of northern Colorado. Our website is crimsonthread.com. This study was recorded during our normal Tuesday evening Bible study. Enjoy the study. I would like to do Malachi. So Malachi prophesied after the return from Babylon and after the rebuilding of the second temple. So Malachi comes in chronologically after Nehemiah and Ezra. It's organized around a series of statements by God, answered by sarcastic questions from the priests, and then a discourse by God. So there are, depending on how you count, either seven or eight of these statements and sarcastic questions going along with, with the answers. Now, if you go back to Nehemiah, when Nehemiah came back, he and Ezra rebuilt the walls, rebuilt the temple. A lot of the Jews basically went native. So they were marrying Canaanites, or you know whatever the ites were at that time. Comment was that some of their children don't speak Hebrew anymore, they just speak whatever the local Canaanite languages are. The upper class Jews were oppressing the lower class Jews by lending it interest so that their fields were all mortgaged and they couldn't make any money. So one of the things that Nehemiah did is he instituted a bunch of reforms. He made, especially the Levites, put away foreign wives. He made them restore lands and property that they had taken by uh, non-Torah practices. Torah says that if your brother falls into hardship, you can lend him money, but you can't do it at interest. So they were not obeying the year of release. I mean, they just weren't doing Torah. So what Nehemiah did is he got them back on the right page of Torah, and things were going along, and after a while, they went back into their old ways. In other words, it's like a revival. When the tent preacher comes through town and everybody gets a revival and you got people fainting and talking in tongues and going down for altar calls and all that kind of stuff, about six months later, lots of folks are right back where they started from. It's that kind of a thing. So what Malachi is doing on God's behalf is he is primarily talking to the priestly class. Malachi. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? So this is the first of those sarcastic questions. God says, I've loved you. And Israel says, yeah, how? I mean, that's sort of the tone of the question. Then God, by Malachi, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. All right, now what's being spoken of here 
is before the Babylonian conquest of Israel, remember the northern kingdom got sanded off about 100 years before, Judah started making pacts with the surrounding neighbors with the intention of throwing off the Babylonians. The Babylonian invasion came in two stages. They conquered the Assyrian Empire, which is the empire that destroyed Israel. So Babylon takes over from Assyria. Babylon comes down and doesn't conquer Jerusalem, but puts them under tribute. And furthermore, puts all of the surrounding small countries, to include Edom, under tribute. That, that means we're not going to conquer you. You're an independent country, but you've got to send us X amount of money and stuff every year. During the interval between when they got put under tribute to Babylon, Israel got restive and started making alliances with the other small countries in the area with the idea that they were going to throw off the Babylonian yoke. At the time, Babylon was busy with someone else, and I don't remember who off the top of my head. Sort of like when the United States Revolution, the only reason the United States Revolution succeeded is because the French were giving the British a hard time. So the British Empire was focused on dealing with competition and warfare with the French, and the American colonies were just sort of a, a sidelight. And the Americans took advantage of that situation to gain their independence. What Judah is trying to do is trying to do the same thing while Babylon is engaged with somebody else. And while that's going on and their attention is not focused on us, maybe we can break away and become truly independent again. Well, that didn't work. Nebuchadnezzar came back down with an army and conquered the place and sanded it off flat. In that process, Edom, who had made alliance with Judah and Jerusalem as part of this little local plot, looked at all those hairy Babylonians and said, hmm, we don't have a plot with you, Judah, you're on your own, and furthermore, we're going to help the Babylonians. So the Edomites turned and stabbed Judah in the back when Nebuchadnezzar came down. So what this is talking about then is after that, Esau or Edom was then conquered and destroyed, and I think it was by uh, Arabian tribes out of the desert that did it. And they got driven out of Edom, and of course Edom is to the east and south of the Dead Sea. So Edom got destroyed, and the remaining Edomites fled across into southern Israel, southern Judah, and they became the Idumeans. And the Idumeans, you all recognize, of course, are the line from which Herod came. Herod is an Idumean, which means he's an Edomite, which means that he is a remnant of the destruction of Edom as talked about here in this first vignette in Malachi. The first of the questions, God says, I've loved you. Israel says, yeah, how? And then God explains how he has dealt with the Edomites on their behalf. 
Now down to verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. The accusation here is, you are giving me lip service as saying, I am your father, I am your master, and if in fact I am this thing that you are telling me, then where's the, where's the evidence of this? And then the sarcastic response is, but you say, how have you despised your name? You know, it's, it's again sort of like a two-year-old who has been caught doing something wrong and comes back with, well, it's all your fault. So the, the, the response then is, but you say, how have we despised your name? Verse 7, God again, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? You've despised me by offering polluted food. And the priest says, what do you mean polluted food? Huh? What are you talking about? So that's the second of the questions. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? The idea here is you are treating me in a way that you would not treat your earthly governor. If you have tribute that you have to pay to your governor and you show up with mangy, sick, lame sheep in order to pay what you owe your governor, your governor is not going to be pleased with you and he's not going to accept it. Yet you bring those to me and expect me to accept them. What's going on there, and it happens to this day. How many people do you know that bring their junk to church? Oh, I've got this old dishwasher. I have a brand new one now, and I'm sure the church could use this dishwasher. People do it all the time. They think that the church is a place where you get rid of junk that you don't want, and you don't want to have hauled off. So you take it to the church, and the church then hauls it off, and you're supposed to get a tax deduction, and people are supposed to look upon you as if you're very generous. I will tell you, quite frankly, God doesn't want your junk. Doesn't need your junk. Not you personally, but you understand what I'm saying. The deal here is your governor's got skin on. If you mess with your governor, he can come and take your stuff and put you in jail and do all sorts of stuff. God doesn't do that directly. And so people think because God doesn't do that directly, there are no consequences to offering God second best. What God is saying here is, uh, hey folks, I noticed, and I've noticed that you aren't bringing me your best. What I'm doing here is I'm calling you on it with the idea that I will give you an opportunity to correct it. But you need to understand that if you keep doing this, there are going to be consequences. And it isn't going to be something as obvious as fire falling down from heaven and consuming your hooch. I mean, it'll be obvious that things aren't going well, but it won't, there won't be an obvious tie. Whereas with the governor, if you take him a blind sheep, he'll just kick you out 
throw you in jail, come and steal your stuff. Very direct, very clear, and you know exactly what the consequences are. So what people tend to do is they tend to accommodate the thing that they can see and put off the thing that they can't. So that's what is being said here. All right, now down to verse 9. And, and the grammar here is a bit awkward. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. So what is being said here is, you offer me this blind stuff, and then you entreat my favor. As if I should be grateful for this junk you're bringing into my temple. So this, and now entreat the favor, it, should, it could also read, and then you entreat the favor of. And with such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? In other words, is he going to give you any favor when this is the gift that you brought him? Verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. So what he's saying is, you guys are going through the form of religion. In other words, the temple doors are open, the sacrificial fires are going, the, you get sacrifices at the appropriate schedule, but the st stuff you're sacrificing is in fact junk. And what I really wish is somebody would have the sand just to shut the doors and stop. Because it's really ticking me off, is what God is saying. Verse 11, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness it is, and you snort at it. So what they're saying is, and this will be developed a little as we go down here, Hey, we just came back from Babylon. We've been in captivity for 70 years. We've rebuilt the walls. We've rebuilt the temple. And it doesn't look like we're any better off than we were before. Where is the promise of the Messiah? Where is the greatness that you said you would restore? What they're saying is, Oh, what a weariness it is. In other words, we've been doing these sacrifices and stuff, and it hasn't been doing us any good. And the whole thing has become routine, tedious, boring. We're burned out. We don't like it anymore. We'll keep doing it, but we don't like it. And what God is saying to them is, it's very obvious you don't like it. So verse 13 again. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame, or sick, and this you bring for your, as your offering? Shall I accept it from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And what they're doing is they're cheating people out of livestock, and they're keeping the best for themselves and they're culling out the junk, and that's what they're sacrificing to God. So not only is it not the best, it is also not honestly gained. 
chapter 2. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring, and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. All right, now what does that mean? That my covenant with Levi may stand. What he's saying is, I have a covenant with Levi, and I am not abrogating it. He's not going to break the covenant. But Levi isn't doing its part of the covenant. Therefore, there are consequences that are going to flow from Levi's non-performance. So, because the covenant is going to stand, I will exact the penalties. In, In other words, if I let you get away with it, that means that my covenant with Levi no longer stands. It's just like with Israel. In Deuteronomy, in Leviticus, where he talks about the blessings and the curses. What he says is, my covenant's forever. And if you keep your side of it, then these are all the blessings that will flow. On the negative side is, if you don't keep your side of it, these are all the curses that will flow. And the curses are every bit as much a part of the covenant as the blessings are. So if the covenant is to stand, and if the covenant is to be eternal, when you guys don't keep your part, I must do the things that are on the negative side of that covenant in order for the covenant to remain standing. Five. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth. No wrong was found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. One of the jobs of Levi, you know, the first job, of course, is to serve in the presence of God. But the other part of Levi is to be the teachers, to instruct the people in the Torah, and to render judgment when necessary. And so he says, at the beginning, Levi did those things. He rendered true judgment. My words were on his mouth. He instructed people in my Torah. Those were all things that I had covenanted with him to do. But now, since Levi has turned aside, he has now giving wrong instruction, and he is showing partiality, which is to say he's basically taking bribes to give judgment. Verse 10. Have we not all one father, Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. 
For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So notice there's, there's two things here. One is Judah has gone after foreign gods. We saw that happening in Nehemiah, where you know they came back and lots of them went native, married Canaanite wives, children assimilated, and so forth. So what God is saying is those children are cut off from my people if they bring an offering to the Lord of hosts. Notice the grammar here. In fact, let's read it in Tanakh, make sure that the grammar is the same. Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we break faith with one another, profaning the covenant of our ancestors? Judah has broken faith. Abhorrent things have been done in Israel and Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned what is holy to the Lord, what he desires, and espoused daughters of alien gods. So this is daughters of alien gods, what I am suggesting is Canaanite women. May the Lord give to him who does this no descendants dwelling in the tents of Jacob and presenting offers to the Lord of hosts. So what he's saying is the people who have married Canaanite women, may those people get no descendants dwelling in Jacob who also sacrifice. In other words, you're not going to dwell among the tents of Jacob, which is to say you're not going to be an Israelite. And furthermore, you're not going to be able to sacrifice. Verse 13, and this you do as well. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, weeping and moaning, so that he refuses to regard the oblation anymore and to accept what you offer. But ask, because of what? Because the Lord is a witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have broken faith, though she is your partner and covenanted spouse. Now, who is he talking to here? Priests. The laws of marriage are different for priests. So what he's saying here is, you priests have broken faith with the wives of your youth. And you cover the altar of the Lord with weeping. In other words, you come in, you, you basically have multiple come to Jesus meetings, but your actions don't match. All priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. In other words, the priests are Levites who are also sons of Aaron. You also have lots of Levites that are not sons of Aaron who are Levites but not priests. And in the Torah, the rules of marriage for a priest are different than they are for a normal Israelite. Verse 15. Did not the one make all, so that all remaining life breath is his? And what does that one seek but godly folk? So be careful of your life breath. Let no one break faith with the wife of his youth. So what he's saying here is, I made you one flesh. And when you break faith, you basically go against your own life breath. 16. For I detest divorce, said the Lord, the God of Israel, and covering oneself with lawlessness as a garment, said the Lord of hosts. So be careful of your life breath, and do not act treacherously. So he hates divorce, and he also hates lawlessness. 
And when he says, covering yourself with lawlessness as a garment, what do you suppose he's talking about there? There's a saying, and I will, I will paraphrase it because I don't remember it exactly, by a Frenchman named Bastiat. I think that's how I pronounce his name. He says, when a people lives by plunder, they will make laws that legalize plunder, and they will make philosophies that glorify it. That's what socialism is, a philosophy that glorifies plunder. So this idea of covering oneself with lawlessness as a garment means that you have taken on lawlessness as the rule and philosophy of your life, and you wrap yourself in it. If you go against someone who is a socialist and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, how are you taking money from him and giving it to him who won't work? You cold-hearted son of a... Oh, you have no compassion whatsoever. You are mean and greedy. So what they're doing is they have got a philosophy around them that justifies plunder. And there's a difference between charity, which God commands, and plunder, which God abhors. So if you are to look at a person who is naked, homeless, and powerless, and you are to take open your own wallet and say, here, go buy yourself some food. Here, come sleep in my barn. Here, come, that's charity. God highly approves of that. But if you see that same wretched person and you say to your neighbor, all right, give me your money, I'm going to go help this guy. And oh, by the way, I'm going to take a cut as my fee for doing that. God does not approve of that. Everybody see what's being talked about when we say covering oneself with lawlessness as with a garment. It, it is not simply behaving badly. Everybody behaves badly from time to time. We all do. It is setting yourself up with a systematic legal and philosophical system that justifies wickedness. So I'm in Malachi 2.17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? So now there's two questions there. Nobody will come before God and say, he who does evil is good. That isn't how it will be phrased. How it will be phrased is, Look at that wonderful government program that we have put together to do this. God looks at that program and says, that's evil. And what you're doing is you are saying that those who do evil are in fact doing good. So it is not the case that, for example, if you were to walk down the street and there was a mugger, and you grabbed that mugger and you brought him in before God and said, God, look at this mugger. He's doing, good, he's doing good work by mugging. That's not what's being said. It's more subtle than that. God sees through it, and he calls it evil. Man, by his philosophy, calls it good. And so what you see is, is the juxtaposition between God's viewpoint and man's viewpoint, which we talked about extensively in Jeremiah when we tried to figure out how to figure out what truth is. Because one of the things that happens with people with clever philosophies is they take people captive. 
there are a whole lot of people who are on government programs who think that they are deserving, righteous, virtuous. I'm owed this. They have been fooled. Now, don't get me wrong. The people who set them up are not fooled at all. They know exactly what they're doing. But there are lots of people who have been fooled. So the question becomes, how do you discern what's true? And what Malachi is doing here, God is doing through Malachi, is he is saying, you're calling this good. I'm telling you it's evil. Because it doesn't line up with my Torah. Or a question, the other one is, or by asking, where is the God of justice? And again, one of the things that I recommend, and I don't have time to do it right now, is go read Psalm 73, because it asks this question. And the question is, you have got all of these people who are not following your Torah, yet they are prospering. What's with that, God? I'm sure you've all asked that question. You know, why aren't you striking down some of these people, God? Why are they prospering? Why are they living quiet, fat lives and dying in peace? That's the question that's being asked. And of course, the obvious corollary to my lightning-fast human mind is, huh, maybe that's the way I should behave. And that's the temptation. That's the temptation. And Psalm 73 is, is really excellent when the bastards have got you down. One of my favorite psalms when things are not going right. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save three and four for next time because I've got enough to get about halfway through three, but then there won't be enough next time without three and four. So with your kind permission, let, let's stop there and we'll pick it up at three next time. Would somebody like to close in prayer?